to uh, um, uh, make the, uh, uh, the name of Jesus Christ great among the nations. And so we've begun with the gospel and we've looked at baptism. We looked at some of the basic principles that govern our spiritual life. Um, the renewing our minds, the putting off, the putting on, the understanding that there's two distinct forces pulling on you. Uh, there's the force of the world and your flesh uh, that is pulling you away from God in a decrepit, uh, uh, debased nature. And then there is the, 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 the person of God, the Spirit of God that is forming you into Jesus Christ and how we unleash the truth of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then we looked at um, uh, the book of Ephesians, <clears throat> chapter 2 and 3, of the, the idea of a church as a place of belonging and a place of purpose. And then last week we looked at the church as a household of God and the truth that God has given us and laid out a certain order for the church to operate uh, gathered and scattered here. And so um, I'm going to expand on that this morning by looking at the truth that the family of God, the household of God, is made up of households, made up of individual families here. And uh, I didn't plan this just for Father's Day. This was... This was in advance here. God worked it out for us to have this for Father's Day here. Um, so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter chapter 5 this morning, verse 22. We're going to go through chapter 6, verse 9, but I'm not going to spend as much time on the end. I'm going to look more at the, at the family, the individual building blocks of, of the church family. Um, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, and their children, their homes, their households. And look at the God, guidelines that God gave Paul. Uh, who was to set the church in order. And we're going to see how important your individual families are and how that's connected to the, the church as a whole next week in the, in the book of, of Titus. And the book of Ephesians tells us what the church is. It tells us how to walk in Christ as a church together, how to live in the body of Christ. If you look at the previous verses before Ephesians 5.22, it's how to live as a church. The one another's. And this section here, which uh, many times is called a household code here, it's embedded in the larger section of how to live as a church. If you're going to know how to live as a church, you need to know how to live as a family, in your own family, and it breaks down the whole family unit. You'll notice a pattern in these verses here. You'll notice, first of all, there's the one under someone's care, and then there's the one who is over the care. And it, and it continues that pattern through these verses, Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9. You have first the wife, the one who's under the care of the husband, and then, of course, the husband, the one who's over the care. Then you have the children, and then you have the father, and you um, have the, uh, the household servants, which, is, uh, which would have been something that would have been a unique part of the Roman culture. Um, these were, this, wasn't, this was much different than American slavery. Uh, this was, uh, uh, many times these servants were hired, some indentured uh, here. Regardless, it wasn't a wonderful thing. And the gospel that Paul uh, delivers through as the mouthpiece of God begins to slowly deteriorate that system. And little by little, uh, the slaves become more and more free under the Roman Empire as Christianity starts to expand. That's a wonderful study in and of, its, of itself in, in history here. But... Um, the point of Ephesians here with the household code is, that, code is that for the church to function properly and walk out what it means to be a family of families, this is part of what it takes for that to work and to be a witness to our world. 
so that God's family grows bigger and it grows deeper. So it's how families are to be structured according to the grace of God and the setting of love and mutual respect and honor and tenderness, all while being related to the life of the church as a whole. And he's going to lay out authority, but he's going to remind us here with what he says about that authority. If there's no love and the design of authority, then the result's going to be rebellion and destruction. Rules without relationship brings rebellion. And it may be different here as we read these verses in the family. Perhaps you were raised in another family you're in now. But no matter what, I want you to look at your individual part in your family here. And I understand there's singles among us as well. And uh, these things are not, uh, are not just to, 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 to brush by our singles as well. Uh, our singles need to know how a good family is to be structured. And um, God might bring them a family. He might not. Uh, that's, that's, that's beside the point. The point is to understand God's instructions for, for the family. And as we listen to these verses, I want you to ask yourself, hey, because there is not a single perfect family represented among us, not one, not one, what in your family would need to be demolished or what in your family would need to be restructured, aligned with God's instructions right here in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, you might notice in our society that disintegration of that family unit, even just commonly. and um, Kids who don't love and obey Jesus in the world, uh, many times mocking our hypocrisy and how our families and marriages go. And the glory of Jesus and our lives being contaminated and things like what... Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded or conceited, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but dying the power thereof from such turn away. And that doesn't describe today's society and our country here, uh, and in many times the church, um, then, uh, uh, then, then we really have no re reason to look at Ephesians 5. But I want to tell you that Ephesians 5 helps deconstruct a lot of these things and build up godly families here for the sake of Jesus here. What would it look like if families did not align themselves after the Word of God and these instructions here. Well, there wouldn't be tender love and service with husbands and wives. There wouldn't be respect and dignity. You would see more and more empty nesters divorcing because they put their kids at the center of life instead of their family around Jesus and His purpose of building up the church. There would be little care for the souls of our children. Oh, we might put care into how cute they look or the good grades they might have or how well they do at sports or making sure they're involved in every activity that's available, but little care for their spiritual nature. We might even uh, uh, demand obedience with our kids, but without the gracious love that is to shape that. We might even try to modify behavior without getting to the heart of the child. We might, as parents, try to live our dreams or our fantasies 
through our kids instead of God's unique plan for them. The result would be a little interest in God's eternal purpose in building up His church. We might, regarding, disregarding these words, have a whole generation of parents that have been abandoned to nursing homes who put other things uh, there as they're raising their kids like work or their own interests or uh, the attention given to screens of any kind above the actual work of a grace-based relationship with their kids. You would have a, a, a God who's separate from the families, who, who kind of lives in this little compartment, maybe on Sundays, and is given a, a token uh, worship on Sundays. And you might have a, a, a very little God who's, who's not involved in very much in everything of the home and life. You might have a missing joy of the Spirit in the home. You might also, as we look at the end of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse uh, 8 and 9, you might have the hypocrisy in the workplace, the hypocrisy of a boss who says, I'm a Christ follower, but does his work and treats those who work under him in a certain way, or those who work having a certain work ethic that doesn't align with what Christ has laid out. All kinds of problems here of not aligning to these truths here. And all these things and uh, can corrode the witness of the church as we represent Jesus' church and ultimately the repre representation of Jesus Christ. But we have testified. When you're part of a church, you have testified through baptism, through your salvation testimony, that Jesus has saved you, He's washed you, and He's at work within you. And He's saved you to shine Him out to the world. But what would it look like? to lean more and more and press into Jesus as King and our Rescuer and be washed and growing in Him in our weeks of Sundays through Saturdays. Well, these instructions here that God gives us, we could kind of picture the world as a river and a current. And these instructions that God gives us are a raft. And the more we inflate this raft, the more we press into what God has designed for our families, we'll float well in a river that, that wants to pull us under. And so Paul begins here with answering the question, how do I represent Jesus as a wife? How do I represent Jesus as a wife? If that's my role as a wife, how do I represent Jesus? And so let's read the scriptures here. Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. 
Here's the first insight. Wives. Boiling it all down is this. Show that Jesus reigns in how you relate to your husband. Show how Jesus reigns. That He reigns gloriously. That He is good in how you relate to your husband. The idea here that He brings up for the wives is is labor to lift up your husband in dignity. Labor to lift up your husband in dignity. You watch any sitcom about the family, right? And what do they do to the head of the household? They make him look like an idiot, right? Sadly, many times in our culture that is the case, right? But the job of the wife is to lift up her husband in dignity and honor to the Lord. That shows that Christ is good, that He is that He reigns. Um, you say this is really hard for me, and I want to tell you, wives, that you are not alone, and probably every wife in here struggles with this. If they didn't, for two thousand years, Paul wouldn't have written this, right? In her book, Confronting Christianity, where she writes and explains what Christianity is to the unbeliever. Rebecca McLaughlin writes about her struggles with this idea of submitting to her husband. She says this, I came from an academically driven, equality-oriented, all-female high school. I was now studying in a majority male college, and I was repulsed. I had three problems with this passage. The first was that wives should submit. I knew women were just as competent as men. My second problem was with the idea that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. It's one thing to submit to Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificing King of the universe. It's quite another to offer that kind of submission to a fallible, sinful man. My third problem was the idea that the husband was the head of the wife. This seemed to imply a hierarchy at odds with men and women's equal status as image bearers of God. At first, I tried to explain the shock away. But when I trained my lens on the command of husbands, the Ephesians passage came into focus. When I realized the lens for this teaching was the lens of the gospel itself, it started making sense. If the message of Jesus is true, no one comes to the table with rights. The only way to enter is flat on your face. Male or female, if we grasp at our right to self-determination, we must reject Jesus. Because he calls us to submit to him completely. Ephesians 5 used to repulse me. Now it convicts and calls me toward Jesus, the true bridegroom who satisfies my needs, the one man who truly deserves my submission. I've been married for a decade, and I'll admit I'm not naturally submissive. I hold a Ph.D. and a seminary degree, and I'm the trained debater of the family. Thank God I married a man who celebrates this. Yet it is a daily challenge to remember my role in this drama and notice opportunities to submit to my husband as to the Lord, not because I am naturally more or less submissive or because he is more or less naturally loving, but because Jesus went to the cross for me. You might say, well, is this this really worth the work? Is it really worth the work? There's an article called... Uh, is Marriage Obsolete, written by a Heather, a Heather Heverleski. And she says, is it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract of marriage? Um, particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to, allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death 
of all things and a host of inconveniences to be married along with untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and regret. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade? I don't know if this person is a, is a, is a believer or not. I, I, I doubt it. But this is, this, is, this is her conclusion about this. So why do I love this torturous state of affairs so much? Speaking of marriage. The daily companionship, the shared household costs, and the tax breaks are not enough. It is because the peak moments of a marriage are when you share your anxieties, your fears, your longings, and even your horrors. That's why sickness and death are key to marriage vows. But there is nothing more divine than being able to say, today I'm really truly at my worst, knowing that it won't make your spouse run for the hills. My husband has seen my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse from here. Somehow that feels like grace. She's kind of on the edges here. She understands, though, the idea of what God intended there with marriage here. Covenant, commitment here. Erwin Lutzer uh, tells a story about a woman who came to a lawyer and says, I want to get a, re- a divorce. I really hate my husband and I want to hurt him. Give me some advice. She wanted to get the gold and give him the shaft. She's wondering, though, about some other way she might do him in. And the attorney said this, probably playing a little reverse psychology here. He said, look, you're going to divorce the guy anyway, so for three months, don't criticize him. Speak only well of him. Build him up. Every time he does something nice, commend him for it. Tell him what a great guy he is and do that for three months. And after he thinks he has your confidence and love, hit him with the news and it'll hurt more. No one thought, well, I can't go wrong on this. Right? I'm divorcing the guy anyway. So why should I speak badly about him anymore? I'm going to only speak well of him. But she complimented her husband for everything he did. For three months, she told him uh, how thankful she was for him, what a great guy he was. And you know what happened to that relationship? After three months, they forgot about the divorce and went on their second honeymoon. Now, I'm not telling you to do these things as a trick. I am saying that why you have a responsibility to obey Jesus and give dignity and honor to your husband, regardless of who he is. Find where you can find it. And praise God for that. If you're going to be an honorable wife to your husband. Husbands. Well, how am I as a husband to represent Jesus Christ? And so if wives are to show how Jesus reigns and how they relate to their husband, husbands show how Jesus gives and how they relate to their wife. They show how Jesus gives and how they relate to their wife. Notice the verses here in Ephesians 5. The instruction of the husband is, is a service here. It's a sacrifice. It's a giving. And it's all connected back to the gospel. The gospel dictates then how we live in light of the gospel, in line with the gospel. Jesus did thus, this for the church. So husbands, respond in this way. And so the idea here in how you uh, show how Jesus gives and how you relate to your life is to put effort in lifting up your wife by serving. Erwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, says again, I once met a man who said, in the 40 years we've been married, my wife and I haven't had an argument. And I said to him, well, my marriage has not been quite that boring, personally. And he says, I kind of like what the Britisher said when he heard in the United States there were many divorces because of incompatibility. He made an amazing statement. He said, I thought incompatibility was one of the purposes of marriage. 
There's a lie out there that says, when you found your husband, you found your perfect soulmate. There's no such thing as a perfect soulmate. You are incompatible because you're two sinners. You have a natural bent toward self-preservation. But the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you and liberates you to die to that and to rise in life and righteousness with Jesus to self-sacrificially serve your spouse. Why? Well, this idea of putting effort here is setting yourself aside means daily there are things that you don't want to do that God is telling you to do for the sake of your wife. Daily. And you must set those aside. Why? Well, look what he says about the church and marriage. Marriage is a metaphor. It's a parable. It's an illustration of the true reality. Now, we look at our marriages and think that's the true reality. Well, your marriage is a picture. The ultimate reality is Jesus in the church. And your marriage is to reflect that. One man says, this marriage is a metaphor for the church. So the church is a metaphor for marriage. The church has a unity we are to preserve. The church is the diversity. We're to value. Remember, oh, uh, different members, many, many different parts here. The church is a selfless task in which together we are, we are to engage. This is also marriage. This is also marriage. Look what he says in Ephesians 5 um, and verse 30 through 33. As he brings husbands and wives together and reiterates these points, he says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, quoting Genesis 2, 24, <clears throat> shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, or in regards to this, in accordance with this, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Why? Because many times, if you don't have an opportunity to speak up about the gospel of Jesus Christ, your marriage gives a great witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ and what he did for those who will believe. It might be the very loudest display of good news that you show. I'm told that some years ago, decades ago, there was a dispute that arose in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. There was an argument about which British ambassadors would be provided with a Rolls Royce for their official duties in the capital, in a foreign capital. The Treasury, unsurprisingly, wanted these wonderful cars, these Rolls Royce is restricted to just a few, um, a few embassies and ambassadors, perhaps the ones in Washington, D.C., or Moscow, or Paris. The Foreign Office, however, argued for many more based on this reason. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain, they said. But when they see this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the Union Jack on the hood, they'll say to themselves, well, I haven't been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain, but if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. And in a similar way, this illustrates what God is saying about marriage. 
Men and women may say to themselves, your unbelieving neighbors may say to themselves as they observe, and they do. They do. Well, I've never seen God. Sometimes I wonder, when I look at the world, if God is good, if there is a God. But if you can make this man and woman love and serve one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness as well as health, if he can give him resources to love his wife with Christ-like sacrifice, well, then he must be a good God. And if Christ can give his wife grace to submit so beautifully with such an attractive spirit to this imperfect man, then again, he must be a good God. Don't disregard your marriage for the sake of your gospel testimony. Well, kids, what if I'm a son or daughter of those people above in those verses? And by the way, we're all kids. We're all children of that, I mean, of some parents, right? Well, he gives instruction for that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And here's the third insight here for kids. Show Jesus owns you and how you relate to your mom and dad. Show that Jesus owns you, that you belong to Jesus, and how you relate to your parents. Notice he says, children, obey your parents, and he adds that little prepositional phrase. What is it? In the Lord. In Christ. You're in Christ. Christ is in you if you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the idea of you belong to Jesus. And then he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for what? This is right. And by that, he's not just saying, well, this is the right thing to do, and you should just do it. What he means by that is, this is what righteousness is in your role. This is righteous. This is virtuous. This is good. And notice what he attaches to this, kids. When Jesus says here in these verses, obey your parents, he attaches a reward with it. He says that it may be well with you. Do you want things to be well with you? He says that you may have a, a, a long life. The idea there is, a, is, is the fullness of life. Fullness of life. Reward of a long life. A man named Os Guinness, who's a Christian philosopher in, uh, in, in England. He grew up in China. Um, he's in his 80s now, and he lived in Nanjing, which is the nation's capital. And there were very few good schools to go to. So at the age of five, before World War II, he found himself sitting off by plane to a boarding school in Shanghai. This is the first time, age five, that he's going to be away from his parents for a long time. And so his daddy, to remind him of what he needed to remember, gave him a stone. They gave him two stones. Two smooth, flat stones. And he painted on them his life motto and his mom's life motto. And Os carried these two stones in his pockets. During these years when he's away from his parents, learning schooling here, he carried these two little stones in the pockets of his gray flannel shorts that kids who uh, went to English uh, schools wore as their uniform. And in the right-hand pocket was his father's motto, Found Faithful. In the left-hand pocket was his mother's motto, Please Him. And years had passed, and somehow over the years he had lost those 
little stones. But he never forgot the lesson of those little stones, kids. Be faithful. Be found faithful in God's eyes. And please Him. Listen, kids. You have nothing to prove, but you have one person to please. You have one person to love and obey ultimately, and then the rest of that will follow here. Lord Jesus Christ. And this is preparation for life. Kids, do you know that in your home, as you're learning how to relate to your parents, you're getting prepped for life, prepared for life? Because I hate to say it, but when you're out of the home, adults, we can all testify, you still got people over you, don't you? you still got people in authority over you. You have to learn your, your home is a training ground. It's a practice field for that. And when you go out into the world, besides the benefits of earning spiritual rewards, I want to tell you, kids, that you'll also be head and just on a practical level. You will be heads and shoulders over many of the people in the world and how you excel in the workplace and excel in life. You'll stick out in a good way. Um, and so... Press into honoring your parents uh, there. The best example of this is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He grew in grace and wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Um, And what is obeying your parents? Well, it's obeying right away with the right attitude. And if there's something that you're having a problem with, there is a proper appeal that you can make. You can make proper appeals to your parents. They may agree or disagree with your, with your appeal, but you can do it in the proper spirit, in the proper way, have a conversation. Mom, Dad, have you ever thought about this? I understand what you're asking me to do, but you can make a proper appeal to your parents. And, um, and uh, it, it's, it's a blessing when my kids do that because it tells me they heard what I said, they want to obey, but there's something there that they're seeing in the big picture there that might be... Um, that I might not have all the, all the um, um, uh, wisdom about. There might be some blinders I have. And so, kids, there's a proper way to make a, uh, an appeal to your parents or something um, that might need, they might need to consider. By the way, that doesn't mean that every situation that you have when your parents tell you something, it's a, no, it's a, it's a, it's a rare thing to make an appeal, but there is a proper channel for that. I read about a missionary in the Dominican Republic who was on a uh, he was on a mission trip, and uh, if you've been in a developing country, you notice how dangerous traffic can be because of uh, the lack of following the traffic laws. Vehicles whiz past. Sometimes kids are playing by the side of the road, and vehicles can whiz by uh, so quickly, coming just a few feet from the kids. And he said one night his son Sam, six years old, was playing a game, and he's in his own little world. He would zig and zag back and forth on the sidewalk under the narrow street and back. It wasn't a heavily, heavily traveled road. There was, there was some loud music by the neighbors blaring, and it was, it was pretty dark. And from about ten feet away, the missionary said to his son, Samuel, don't move. And he froze. He obeyed. And a split second later, a motorcycle zipped past, going fast with no lights on, right where Sam was about to step. And a six-year-old heard his dad's voice, and he didn't ignore that or argue or blatantly disobey, or in that case, appeal. Right? Missionary said, I said, freeze, and he froze. And that obedience probably saved his life. And i got to ask the question, kids. With your track record of obedience, would you have frozen? Would you have stopped here? 
Can I tell you something about your parents, kids? They've been kids. And their parents. You've only been kids. They see the world from a bigger perspective than you. And they're doing it for your good. And God will reward you when you put yourself in submission to your parents here. Parents, our goal is that our children should obey us the first time we ask. Not the second or third or fourth time. Not when I count to three. Um, not, not, not when uh, I manipulate here. Because as followers, because here's what you're doing. You're showing your children how it is to relate to God. You don't want your kids saying to God, well, I don't know if I should listen to what your word says. No. You're showing them that when we hear our Father's voice, we should obey Him the first time He speaks to us. And so, don't, endure, don't enable delayed obedience. Um, relate to God. If you, if you, if you uh, enable delayed obedience, what you actually are doing is, parents, you are actually participating in hardening, hardening your child's heart in rebellion against God, ultimately. So that leads us to the next question. Well, how do I parent these kids? Well, look what he says. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, frustration, anger, but bring them up in the nurture, the discipline, and admonition of the Lord. Here's the next insight. Show parents, and particularly fathers, show how Jesus shepherds and how you relate to your children. Show how Jesus shepherds and how you relate to your children. There's some there's there, there's there's two things that kind of stand in um in, in tension with one another. You need to stretch your children and you need to do it with a gracious spirit. They need to be pushed. Kids need to be pushed. But you need to do it in a gracious spirit. Um one of the things that can happen in in, in with fathers is being uh, and parents is being over involved. We we jokingly call these the helicopter parents, right? Parents who work too hard to offer their kids way too many choices, right? Because we think we're going to try to uh, build up their self-esteem and guard them from hardship. But in the process, we will raise, like we're seeing today, an entitled teacup generation of children that can't handle life's bumps and bruises and stay close to their parents in the sense that they don't leave and cleave. Because that's where their little safety zone is. And there's this, there's a lie that you're believing if that's how your tendency is to be. It's this hopeful belief that um, if, we, if, we, if we do things a certain way, our, our kids will turn out not just to be happy adults, but adults who will make us happy. And that's misguided. You can, to a certain degree, protect your kids from nasty classmates. And bad grades and all kinds of rejection and limitations. But guess what? They're going to bump up against these things anyway later, aren't they? In fact, by trying very hard to give them a perfectly happy little childhood, we are actually making it harder for our kids to grow up. So maybe part of this here is some of the parents, us parents, we need to do some, some growing up here and some some letting go. And then there's parents who are under-involved, right? Do little and have very little uh, relationship 
uh, with, their, with, their, with their kids. There's three, phase, three phrases that um, family life specialist Delmer Holbrook and his wife have noticed come up uh, across parents. The three things that fathers say most in responding to their kids. Ready? What do you think they are? First is, I'm too tired. Second is, we don't have enough money. And third is, keep quiet. That, those are the three phrases that at least American kids are hearing the most from their fathers. There might be a time and place for some of those, right? But what should they be hearing more than anything? Michael Jackson writes this, or shared this about his experience as a kid. At age 46, he said this, When I was young, I wanted more than anything else to be a typical little boy. I wanted to build tree houses, have water balloon fights, and play hide and seek with my friends. But fate had it otherwise. Commenting on his father, Joe Jackson, and, the, and the, uh, building that, that uh, his, his family up in the celebrities with the Jackson Five, Michael said his father seemed intent above all else on making us a commercial success. And he says this, but what I wanted was a dad. I wanted a father who showed me love, and my father never did that. Michael Jackson is dead today. Who knows how many of those things played into him. I wanted a dad. Can I just say this as a dad that I do very imperfectly? Be firm. Play with your kids. Play with your kids. I bet if I asked every single empty, empty nester who is here, they would say, boy, I wish I would have not done that as much and would have spent more time playing with my kids. Instruct them in life and the things of the Lord. Play with them. In fact, there's, there's, there's studies just about boys in particular. And I'm sure these are related to, 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 to daughters as well in their own different way here. But boys who wrestle and play and mess around with their dads, or dads take the time to do that, see an intensely lower percentage of boys who dabble in pornography, who show strength and delayed gratification, and who become strong fathers themselves. Just little things like that. And obviously, fathers, your daughters are looking to men and you need to be the man that they look to and they trust to guide you to the correct men that need to be involved with their lives. And how are they going to do that unless you're involved in their lives? Make them special. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. So much of this is about relationships, isn't it? Then, then just two more very quickly. Notice what he says about how you relate to your boss. In, this day, in that day, it was slaves and their masters. But here he says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And here's the point. Show that Jesus rewards and how you relate to your boss. 
This means, in these verses, know the king. Understand this, whether you've got a good boss or a bad boss, that your boss is under him. It's under Jesus, whether he knows that or not. And there may be times where you need to walk away from that boss and leave that particular job because it's very toxic. I'm not saying stay in a, to- a toxic workplace uh, if, if, if there are other options here. But ultimately, the, the, the governing principle here is that show that Jesus is the one you're actually working for. And he's the one who eternally rewards now you're related to your boss. And then finally, what about bosses? Those in charge. Those who have people working under them. Look what he says in verse 9. And you masters, do the same things to them, to those who work for you. Forbearing, threatening, giving up threatenings, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is the respect of persons with him. He's not saying you don't need to give warnings to the people who work under you if they're not uh, uh, doing their, their task. But here's his point. Show how Jesus motivates and how you relate to your workers. Show how Jesus motivates and how you relate to your workers. Be firm. Be fair. He's talking about your attitudes and actions uh, as as someone who God has put uh, over those who work with you, which, like those who work for you, are to be governed by your relationship to your heavenly Lord. There's a difference between manipulation and motivation. And here, a godly boss is one who motivates and not manipulates. So let's sum this up so that we show Jesus well in our families and our workplace. This is, this, this is, the, this is the Monday, right, through, through Saturday life here that he's sitting here. Why is it so important again? Because there's an urgency here for when we don't walk in Christ in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, it really hurts the witness and credibility to the world of our Savior. And so, show that Jesus reigns in how you relate to your husband, wives. Husbands, show how Jesus gives in how you relate to your wife. Children, show how Jesus owns you and how you relate to your parents. Parents and fathers particularly. Show how Jesus shepherds and how you relate to your children. Workers, Show how Jesus rewards and how you relate to your boss. And bosses, show how Jesus motivates and how you relate to your workers. Because by dwelling in the grace of God that God has shown you in Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and your faith in that, take effort in faith through God's inexhaustible supply to press out further and further into His design for your household. This will strengthen our church. This will give glory to His name. And this will till up fertile soil to plant the gospel in as we engage and partner together in Christ's mission to build His family of families. Last summer, I received some horrifying news. I got home and my wife said to me, I think your son, Jackson, three-year-old, was playing with your lawnmower. So I looked at the last horrifying news to me because I don't know how to fix anything. So I looked in the lawnmower and he had the gas tank lit off and he was taking gravel and he was going like this into the gas tank. And I was like, oh boy, what do I do now? 
So somehow I figured out how to take the gas tank off and get all the rocks and dirt out and spray up in there and got it out and worked. But what if I hadn't? What if I had just let it run like that? What if I just pulled that starter cord and let that sludge and those rocks rattle around and get into the pistons and everything else and it wouldn't have worked right, right? Friends, I don't know what the size of the rocks or the gravel is um, that the Spirit's been alerting to you in the passage here that don't belong there, but by God's power and repentance and faith in what God has said in His Word, clean those rocks out. Take it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Wash that away. If you're looking at these things and you've got kids out of the house who have just totally turned from you, want nothing to do for you, and maybe you were part of that problem, you need to let them know that you're sorry and why you're sorry. Fathers who are raising kids right now, if there are things in here that you say, wow, my life is not lining up with God, God has said here, let your families, your wives, your kids know that. Your bosses, those who work on you, confess that. That's a powerful thing. Confess that. And by God's grace, because He's washed you clean, now live to righteousness and what it means to follow Him in these areas. None of us measures up perfectly. But friends, God has given us a righteousness, a perfect goodness. He has chosen to see us in the light of His Son. And so let's walk in line with that. Let's walk worthy of this vocation that we've been called. There's truth here, but there is much grace. And God may bring back the years that the locusts have eaten. It's never too late. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You have not left us in the dark and sometimes this impossible task here of being husbands and wives, fathers, mothers, children, workers, overseers, companies, etc. Lord, we need your power. And you've told us that that comes from an inexhaustible supply. And you will strengthen us as we seek and depend on you to do the work that you've called us to do. And as we do so, it brings glory to your name. It enables gospel opportunities to speak of what you've done. And it allows us to be what is what you intended to be truly human in its fullness here, even in a broken and fallen and sinful world. Thank you for your grace that sets us anew. Thank you that it's never too late to be washed and turned to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day.